Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Most of us have secrets, to one degree or another. But what if you had a really big secret? How long could you keep it? According to author Margaret Atwood, in her novel The Blind Assassin, the best way to keep a secret is to simply pretend there isn't one. So, as the years pass, do you eventually forget about the secret? Or does it lurk at the shadowy edges of your mind, waiting to step into the light? And what price will you pay if your secret is ever revealed? The people in this story each had their own secrets. Some skeletons in the closet, so to speak. But sometimes, even long-buried pasts can come back to haunt us. It began with one woman's secret, a woman named Gladys Wakabayash. The daughter of a billionaire, Gladys was a modest woman who lived a quiet life, caring for her only child and taking piano lessons. To those who knew her, she was a friendly, kind, and thoughtful person. So when Gladys was found dead, in her upscale Vancouver home on June 24, 1992, shock reverberated throughout the wealthy community. The police weren't initially sure what to make of the scene when they arrived at the house in Vancouver's upscale Shaughnessy neighborhood. There, they discovered the petite, middle-aged woman lying in a pool of blood on the floor of her dressing room. It was a puzzling scene. But one thing was certain. Gladys Wakabayash had been murdered, and the police suspected that the killer was someone she knew, since there were no signs of forced entry into the home. It was a vicious assault, but whoever had attacked Gladys had left one key piece of evidence behind. So, it didn't take long for investigators to narrow in on a prime suspect, but ultimately they couldn't make an arrest. The brutal murder of a beloved mother would go cold for many years until a controversial new policing technique would be put into play to try to trick their suspect into confessing. But after 16 years... Would the cold-blooded killer fall for the undercover police charade and finally reveal their deepest secret? I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast series, I'm bringing you the true story of a grisly murder that would take years to solve. The police knew who had done it, but proving it would take extraordinary perseverance patience, and a lot of luck. This is Deadly Secrets, Episode 1, Killer Friendship. He was met with a horrific sight. She was cold to the touch. She was a murder of a good friend. 
1992, Murder, She Wrote, was one of the most popular shows on television. Every week, amateur detective Jessica Fletcher, played by famed actress Angela Lansbury, solved murder mysteries using good old-fashioned logic and reasoning. The answer behind most whodunits usually involved the methodical unraveling of secrets and lies. And no one was better at that than the inquisitive Mrs. Fletcher. But as a real-life whodunit played out in a wealthy Vancouver suburb that same year, one woman's secrets and lies would end in her murder that real-life detectives would find most perplexing. They were going to need more than simple logic and reasoning to trap their suspect. But, very much like the TV series Murder, She Wrote, there would be a script and some award-winning acting. Gladys Wakabayash was the daughter of Taiwanese billionaire Y.S. Mayawi, the chairman of Union Petrochemical Corporation and the giant Linhua Industrial Corporation, originally founded on flour milling. Gladys, the billionaire's third child, moved to Canada in 1976 to study piano. Gladys's Japanese-born husband, Shinji Wakabayash, was a manager for Japan Airlines. The couple married in 1978 and had one daughter, Elisa, a few years later. Gladys was Taiwanese and Shinji was Japanese. And while they didn't argue, their cultural differences ultimately got in the way of their marriage. In April of 1991, after 13 years of marriage, Gladys and Shinji separated amicably. Shinji moved out of their luxurious home in Vancouver's exclusive Shaughnessy neighborhood, while Gladys remained in the 4,800-square-foot home with their 12-year-old daughter, Elisa. The couple continued to have a civilized friendship and co-parenting arrangement. At 41, Gladys was a good-looking woman with a slim figure and long, curly black hair. And while she hadn't dated in over 15 years, she was excited about her future and what it may bring. Wednesday, June 24th, 1992, was shaping up to be an unseasonably hot summer day in Vancouver. At 8.45 a.m., as per her normal routine, Gladys drove her daughter, Elisa, to school and dropped her off. Then, Gladys returned home, as a neighbor later reported seeing her pull into the garage around 9 a.m., At 10.30 a.m., Gladys had a regularly scheduled piano lesson with her instructor, Edward Parker. But she failed to show up. Gladys had never missed one of her piano lessons and hadn't called. So Mr. Parker phoned the Wakabayash house, but only got a recorded message. Gladys also failed to pick up her daughter, Elisa, from school at 3 p.m. that afternoon. This was very unusual, and Elisa couldn't reach her mother on the phone either. She waited for two hours before finally calling her father to come and pick her up. He hadn't heard from Gladys either. When Elisa and Shinji arrived at Gladys's house around 5.30 p.m., Shinji found the back door unlocked which, again, was very unusual. Inside, the house was quiet, and there was no sign of Gladys. Shinji then went upstairs. Maybe Gladys was sleeping or ill in bed. But when he entered the master bedroom, he was met with a horrific sight. Gladys was lying face up on the floor 
of her dressing room. A large pool of blood had soaked into the carpeting close to her head, and she wasn't moving. Shinji bent down to touch her. Was she still alive? She was cold to the touch, and he could see a large gash on her neck. Rushing down the stairs, Shinji grabbed Elisa and ran next door to his brother-in-law's house. He was hysterical, but managed to call 911. When the Vancouver police arrived at the scene, it didn't take long for them to realize that something sinister had happened in the Wakabayash home. Someone had attacked Gladys in the bedroom of her home and murdered her. It was obvious that Gladys's throat had been slit by a sharp bladed instrument and she had bled to death. She also had numerous slashes on her arms, legs, and chest, and there were defensive marks on her hands. The nature and extent of her injuries suggested the killer had acted in a violent rage. This wasn't a random murder. This was personal. When veteran homicide detectives Myrne McLennan and Barry Peters arrived at the Wakabayash house, they were presented with a gruesome scene. But there was no murder weapon, and it didn't appear to be a robbery, as nothing in the house had been disturbed. The killer had been careful, and there were few forensic clues left at the scene. But whoever murdered Gladys had left one clue behind. The police discovered a partial shoe print left in blood on the ceramic tile in the master bathroom. Detective McLennan described the print as having a pointed toe and a honeycomb pattern on the sole. It was obvious that the bloody shoe print had been made by a high-heeled shoe. The police didn't know if they were looking for one killer or two, but they were certain a woman had been in that bedroom when Gladys was murdered. Based on the savagery of the attack, the police also believed the killer had to be someone close to Gladys. So they quickly turned their sights on her ex-husband, Shinji. But there appeared to be no animosity between the separated couple. They had remained friends after ending their marriage, and they were both focused on raising their daughter. The police had to dig deeper into Gladys's life, searching for other clues, because someone clearly hated Gladys Wakabayash and wanted her dead. As the police investigated Gladys's seemingly quiet life, nothing appeared out of the ordinary. They discovered that she'd had a short-term relationship with a music teacher who lived in Chilliwack, British Columbia. But that romance had also ended amicably. Then, just a few weeks into the murder investigation, detectives started hearing a strange rumor involving Gladys. It appeared that Gladys had a new man in her life, a secret romance. But her new lover was a married man. And apparently, his wife had recently found out about their affair. With a bloodied high heel shoe print left at the crime scene, investigators wanted to know more about Gladys's married lover and his scorned wife. Derek and Jean Ann James lived in a modest home on Bridge Street in the city's middle-class Richmond neighborhood. Derek was an air traffic controller and had met Jean at work in 1968. A former flight attendant and union leader with Vancouver-based Pacific Western Airlines, Jean had originally trained as a nurse in the UK. 
At the time of Gladys' murder in 1992, the James had been married for 24 years and had one son named Adam. Jean was described by neighbors and friends as a sweet lady. She was an animal lover and an avid gardener. In 1992, Jean was 53 years old, a little overweight with a blonde perm, but she always paid attention to how she looked. Vancouver Sun newspaper crime reporter Kim Bolin. Jean definitely has a, she had quite a strong English accent and she had kind of curled blonde hair and she was well made up and her eyebrows were done and she was quite refined. In 1985, Derek and Jean Ann James met Gladys and Shinji Wakabayash at a school event. The couple's children attended the same Montessori school. The unlikely friendship also developed over their common careers, as both husbands worked in the airline industry, as had Jean. The James and the Wakabayashes began spending time together, with each couple hosting dinner parties and social events. But by 1991, Gladys and Shinji's marriage had collapsed, and they had decided to divorce. And by 1992, Jean's marriage with Derek was also troubled. Jean had confided to another close friend that she believed Derek had been unfaithful. But Jean wasn't prepared to give up on her marriage, so she began following Derek, trying to catch him in the act. Using a friend's car, Jean spied on Derek for a few months but couldn't confirm her suspicions about another woman. Then, when Derek told Jean he had to go to Toronto on business, Jean suspected he was lying. She asked a friend to get Derek's telephone records for that weekend he was supposedly in Toronto. The friend, who worked for a research company, was able to obtain a copy of Derek's hotel bill the bill confirmed that Derek had been in Toronto that weekend, and it included a list of phone calls made and received from Derek's room during his stay. There was one number that appeared multiple times, and Jean recognized it right away. It was Gladish Wakamayash's home phone number. Jean's suspicions about her husband were confirmed. He was having an affair. But the other woman was one of her closest friends. Two days later, Gladys Wakabayash would be dead. After Gladys's brutal murder on June 24, 1992... Jean reached out to Shinji to express her shock and sorrow. Then, two days later, she approached Shinji again, asking more about how Gladys had been killed. Jean's concern seemed natural, since the two couples had been close friends for seven years. But for Gladys's grieving husband, Jean's probing questions about how his estranged wife had died seemed odd. And Shinji wasn't the only person who thought Jean's inquisitiveness following Gladys's murder was strange. When police discovered and confirmed Gladys's secret affair with Derek James, his wife Jean became their number one suspect. Someone had left a bloodied high heel shoe print at the murder scene. And like a macabre version of Cinderella, they needed to find the shoe that had left that print. Find the shoe, find the foot that fits the shoe, find the murderer. Two weeks after the murder of Gladys Wakabayash, Vancouver police executed a search warrant on the home of Derek 
and Jean Ann James. Paying close attention to Jean's shoe collection, they examined every pair for comparison to the shoe tread left at the crime scene, but discovered no footwear matching the bloody shoe print in Gladys's bathroom. The police also seized Jean's car, but found no evidence or traces of blood in the vehicle. The only evidence tying Jean to the crime scene were her fingerprints, but there was a logical explanation for her fingerprints to be in the Wakabayash home. Jean and Derek had visited many times over the years. And Jean admitted to being in Gladys's bedroom just two days before the murder. Jean's fingerprints in the house didn't prove that she was connected to the murder, but investigators were certain she was involved. The police interviewed friends and acquaintances of the couple and soon discovered that Jean had told other people about her suspicions that Gladys and Derek were having an affair. A friend of Jean's told the police that Jean had confided in her and was very angry and upset that Gladys had betrayed her. We did hear that Jean and Gladys were really, really close and therefore, you know, Jean was incensed when she found out or suspected that Gladys was sleeping with her husband. After finding no physical evidence in Jean's home or vehicle, investigators set up surveillance on her and continued to monitor her every move. The police also decided to release details about Gladys's death to see if any of the information would rattle Jean or bring forward any other witnesses. The police disclosed how Gladys had been killed and that they believed the murderer was known to her based on the crime scene. The police also revealed that Gladys had been having an affair with a married man, and evidence left at the scene pointed to a woman being involved in the slaying. They described the suspect as a white female in her mid-fifties with blonde hair, approximately five feet four inches tall, and weighing 120 to 130 pounds. The police had just described Jean and James. But the additional information released to the media did not generate any new clues or people coming forward with additional information. And frustrated investigators still didn't have enough to charge Jean and James. While she certainly had motive, the angry spouse betrayed by her husband and good friend, there was simply no forensic evidence tying her to the murder. There were people that knew this couple for a long time who thought she was a bit off or a bit controlling, but I don't think they thought she was a murderer. By the end of 1992, with the murder investigation at a standstill, the Wakabayash family moved on as best they could. Gladys's brother, Hermie Mayawi, and his wife, Susanna Yang, who had lived next door to Gladys's, couldn't stay in their home with the memory of what had happened. So they moved back to Taipei, Taiwan, and took Gladys's daughter, Elisa, with them. In June 1993, one year after Gladys Wakabayash was killed in her home, the Vancouver police and an anonymous donor offered a $60,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her murderer. Investigators were hopeful that a financial reward might encourage someone to come forward, but no one did. The police were certain they knew who had killed Gladys Wakabayash, but without further evidence, their investigation had hit a brick wall, and the case went cold. In 2007, 15 years after Gladys Wakabayash was murdered in her home, 
cold case detectives from British Columbia's Unsolved Homicide Unit decided to re-examine the original evidence in the case. In charge of the Gladys Wakabayash file was Staff Sergeant Bruce Hulan. He confirmed that Jean Ann James was the primary suspect during the 1992 investigation into the murder. But there had not been enough evidence to lay a charge. But now, with the passage of time and more advanced forensic testing, reveal something more significant. The evidence collected at the crime scene in 1992 was retested, but no new information came to light that could definitely put Jean Ann James in Gladys's bedroom on the day she was killed. Once again, investigators were at a standstill. They had a prime suspect with a strong motive for wanting Gladys dead, but no physical evidence tying her to the murder. The police were certain Jean Ann James had gotten away with the cold-blooded murder of her friend Gladys. But now, 15 years later, if they had any hope of ever charging her with the crime, they were going to have to take a much different approach. Without DNA evidence, they needed a confession from Jean and James. But how were they going to get the 68-year-old woman to confess to murder? By 2007, a new investigative approach was being utilized by police departments in unique undercover cases. A covert sting operation known informally as Mr. Big. Originally developed in the early 1990s by the British Columbia Royal Canadian Mounted Police, it soon became known as the Canadian Technique by other law enforcement agencies around the world. A Mr. Big operation would create a fictional world to lure a suspect into a fake criminal organization. Once the suspect was convinced of the fictitious gang, they would be eventually coerced into a confession of their crime in order to maintain their credibility and loyalty to their new criminal associates. Calgary Police Officer Dave Sweet. Um, undercover te- the undercover techniques that are used are used for the most serious of offenses, and typically that would include things like murder. The operatives would build a relationship with the suspect, gain their trust, and enlist the suspect's help in a succession of escalating criminal acts for which they would be paid. Once the suspect was entangled in the so-called felonious organization, they would be persuaded to reveal information about their criminal history to the crime boss, Mr. Big, as an essential condition to being accepted as a member of the organization. Such a secret undercover operation is meticulously planned. The suspect is put under surveillance for an extended period so the police can determine the suspect's habits, routines, and lifestyle. This allows the cops to create a customized strategy to approach the suspect and ultimately convince them to work for the fake crime organization. Once a game plan is established, an undercover officer befriends the suspect. The suspect eventually learns their new friend is a member of a crime organization. They are then offered opportunities to work for the organization, being paid generously for performing simple tasks such as counting money or delivering packages. The suspect discovers how working for the organization brings serious financial rewards and learns even bigger rewards are available if they advance within the organization. During the sting, undercover officers posing as criminals 
stressed to the suspect that the organization values honesty and loyalty above all else. So the officers that are involved in undercover operations are trained officers and they are trained in undercover techniques. I would just add that the vastness of their knowledge ultimately does come through the experience of being part of such things. Because what can be mimicked in training is a lot different than what actually happens in real life. After the suspect is deeply enmeshed with the fake criminal organization, he or she is finally introduced to the crime boss, Mr. Big, either as a reward for work accomplished or as an interview for a better job within the organization. This meeting is secretly videotaped by the undercover operatives with the goal of getting the suspect to confess to their crime. So the the purpose of an undercover operation is to obtain a truthful account from the target of that investigation on what happened or what occurred. That's the purpose. Sometimes the truthful account could be they didn't do it and they have information or evidence that would support that conclusion. But it was only to elicit the truth. Mr. Big may suggest the organization needs details about the suspect's prior crime as assurance of their loyalty to his organization or that the suspect's advancement within the organization may depend on them confessing to a violent crime. And while the technique is extremely controversial, time-consuming, and expensive, it has been used successfully in many difficult cases. For Vancouver cold case investigators, they knew a covert sting was their only hope of getting a full confession from their prime suspect in the 1992 murder of Gladys Wakabayash. So 16 years after the police began their investigation into the homicide, the Mr. Big seduction of Jean Ann James was about to begin. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One day in January 2008, Jean Ann James received a surprise phone call. She had apparently won a day of luxurious treatments at the posh Spa Utopia in downtown Vancouver. She didn't recall entering any contests, but who can say no to a free day at the spa? A few days later, a stretch limo picked her up at home and drove her and another lucky winner to the spa. The two excited women started chatting and it turned out that Jean's new spa companion was the rich wife of a Vancouver developer. The ladies continued to get to know one another through their massages and pedicures, and by the end of their relaxing day, Jean had invited her newfound friend to join her and her husband Derek for a wine-tasting evening. Naturally, the woman accepted Jean's invitation. In fact, she couldn't wait. Jean and her new friend were soon inseparable. Wine tastings, lunches, shopping, they seemed to have so much in common. Jean's friend was fun, carefree, and loved spending money, which she seemed to have a lot of. And it was clear that Jean was a little envious. Jean would often admit to wanting a more lavish lifestyle. In fact, Jean said she dreamed of living in an opulent house in the Shaughnessy neighborhood of Vancouver, the same posh neighborhood where her friend Gladys Wakabayash had lived and died. But Jean never mentioned Gladys. Two months into their friendship, In March 2008, Jean's new friend began acting a little odd. On one social outing, she told Jean she had to deliver a package to someone at a downtown hotel. And on another occasion, she showed Jean three giant bundles of cash, totaling $75,000. Jean soon realized that her friend was involved in something shady and possibly criminal. But whatever it was, she wanted in. On one occasion over lunch at Vancouver's Stanley Park, Jean's friend asked her to be a lookout while she met with someone. For keeping watch, Jean was paid $300, which she gladly accepted. The friend eventually confessed to Jean that she was part of an organized crime ring, helping to launder money at Vancouver casinos and selling stolen credit cards. And if Jean wanted to make some money, she could introduce her to some people. Jean didn't hesitate. Soon, Jean was taking part in various small-time criminal transactions and meeting other members in the crime syndicate who lavished her with expensive dinners and flaunted the money they were making. But they warned Jean. Sometimes their business dealings could get ugly and violent. Was that something she was prepared to do? Jean said yes. But they needed to test her. So the criminal gang took her to a secret location where they were holding a guy who they said owed them $300,000. The guy had been kidnapped and beaten. He looked bad, but when Jean saw his battered face, she didn't flinch. The 69-year-old suburban wife and mother told her new friends that the deadbeat had gotten off lightly. She would have cut off his fingers or burned his genitals with a curling iron or put raw meat on his crotch and let dogs at him. She had an ex that 
people recognized. I don't know if she had a lot of other friends. I don't know. There was just something about her, I think, that people were a little bit afraid of her. Jean had proven that she could handle herself, and she didn't shy away from violence. She was ready to take on some serious jobs. Her new associates offered Jean the chance to earn one-third of a $700,000 score. But first, she would have to meet the boss, Mr. Big. A few weeks later, on November 27, 2008, Jean flew to Montreal for her meeting with the crime syndicate's boss. Looking more like a grandmother than a gangster, Jean knocked on the door of a suite at the Intercontinental Hotel. There were five men inside the hotel room, including a good-looking middle-aged man in an expensive suit and shoes. He was clearly the boss the others reported to. He eyed Jean up and down and said he wasn't happy that his associates had brought her in on an important deal without first discussing it with him. He didn't mince words and told Jean he didn't think she could cut it in their world. It can get pretty sporty, he said, referring to the need for violence sometimes. Feeling like she was in some bizarre job interview, Jean began reciting her work experience as a nurse and flight attendant. She wasn't quite sure what to say, but then the man pulled out a newspaper clipping from a file folder on his lap. It was an article about the Gladys Wakabayash murder. He said that his people in Vancouver had heard rumors about the 1992 murder, and word on the street was that Jean was somehow involved. Were you? he asked point blank. Jean hesitated. It had been 16 years, but she really wanted to impress the crime boss. This was her ticket to the lavish lifestyle she had always desired. This is strictly between you and I, she cautioned before proudly revealing her darkest secret. Then she laid it all out. How she had discovered the affair between her husband and her close friend. Gladys had betrayed her in the worst way, so she deserved to die. Jean described how she drove to Gladys's home on the morning of June 24, 1992. She parked a few blocks away and then walked through the back alleys to the Wakabayash house. Jean had called Gladys earlier that morning to tell her that she had a present for her and she would meet her at her house after the kids were dropped off at school. Jean arrived shortly after Gladys returned home at 9 a.m. The two friends chatted over coffee in the kitchen before making their way upstairs. Gladys was due at her piano lesson by 10.30, but Jean told Gladys she had bought her a new necklace and she wanted her to try it on. Gladys sat down on a chair in her dressing room while Jean stood behind her. But there was no necklace. Instead, Jean pulled out a box cutter and slit her friend's throat. Then, while Gladys lay bleeding to death on the carpeted floor, Jean slashed at her, demanding a confession. She wanted to know how long the affair had been going on. I'll call an ambulance if you tell me, she taunted Gladys. But Jean had no intentions of calling anyone. Her husband's mistress was dead, and she was glad. Continuing her confession to the crime boss, Jean said that after she killed Gladys, she went downstairs, washed the coffee cups, and left the house. She then tossed the bloodied murder weapon in a dumpster and burned all of her clothing in the incinerator at her son's school. 
she later traded in her car and bought a new one. The crime boss listened intently to everything Gene was telling him. He said he was very impressed, but was still concerned. Was there anything that could still link Gene to the murder? His contacts told him that the Vancouver police were reinvestigating the crime and retesting some DNA evidence. Gene assured him that the police would never be able to link her to Gladys's murder. Yes, her fingerprints were in the house, but the two women had been friends, so the police had nothing. But did anyone else know? asked Mr. Big. No, said Jean. My mother always told me that if you have secrets, keep them to yourself. It was the perfect crime, and she had gotten away with it. An hour later, when Jean left the Montreal hotel room, she felt good about finally revealing her horrible secret. And she was certain she had impressed her new boss. Two weeks later, on December 12, 2008, Jean Ann James was putting the finishing touches on her Christmas decorations when the Vancouver police arrived at her front door and told her she was under arrest for the murder of Gladys Wakabayash. Everything Jean had said in that Montreal hotel room had been secretly videotaped. Confident of her guilt, but lacking solid evidence, undercover cold case investigators had initiated a Mr. Big sting. For over a year, they worked on an elaborate plan to lure Jean Ann James into a fantasy, a violent criminal underworld where she could earn the respect and the riches she long desired. And when faced with the moment of truth, proof of her ultimate loyalty, she happily confessed to the cold-blooded murder of her good friend. With her confession on videotape, the police and the prosecution were certain of a conviction. But when the murder trial began three years later, in October 2011, the judge would have to decide if the jury would ever get to hear anything Jean Ann James said on that tape. On the next episode of Deadly Secrets, as the Jean Ann James murder trial gets underway, lawyers on both sides present persuasive arguments. The Crown believes that the Mr. Big Sting operation proves without a doubt who killed Gladys Wakabayash. They have a videotaped confession. But the defense quickly challenges the validity of the confession, suggesting the undercover technique used by the police is flawed and can manipulate suspects into falsely confessing to a crime they didn't commit. And statements made on the tape don't necessarily match the evidence from the crime scene. Cold case detectives had created an elaborate criminal underworld to lure Jean Ann James in and get her to admit that she killed her close friend because of an affair. But did they go too far? And would Gladys Wakabayash's killer ultimately go free? This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Written by Kate Yorga and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, 
Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.